0: Welcome to the Black Theater History Podcast, where we seek to celebrate the people, the places, and the plays that comprise the rich history of our African American theater. I'm KB Singh. Today's interview is with the incomparable lighting designer and theater historian, Kathy A. Perkins. Kathy Perkins has designed lighting for productions throughout the world, including venues like St. Louis Black Rep, New Federal Theater, ETA Creative Arts, American Conservatory Theater, Arena Stage, Berkeley Rep, Seattle Rep, Alliance, Goodman, Steppenwolf, Congo Square, Manhattan Theater Club, Alabama Shakespeare. Brooklyn Academy of Music, Studio Arena, Indiana Repertory, Actors Theater of Louisville, Los Angeles Theater Center, Two Rivers Theater, and Victory Gardens, among many others. She just earned her first Broadway credit with Alice Childress's Trouble in Mind at the Roundabout. Kathy is the editor of many texts, including Black Female Playwrights, an Anthology of Plays Before 1950, Black South African Women, an Anthology of Plays, African Women Playwrights, and Alice Childress, Selected Plays. She's the co-editor of Contemporary Plays by Women of Color and Strange Fruit, Plays on Lynching by American Women. She's also a senior editor for the Ritledge Companion to African American Theater and Performance and her most recent work, Telling Our Stories of Home, is forthcoming. Kathy and I met at her apartment in New York during previews of Trouble in Mind as we're all navigating work and COVID, you might note that we're wearing our masks, and we left the windows open, even in November. So you'll hear the familiar sounds of New York construction and traffic pick up, especially around that 20 minute mark. None of that, however, deterred my excitement to speak with Kathy about her incredible career, and I'm thrilled to share our enlightening and inspiring conversation. Enjoy. Well, I'm first of all, thank you very much for making this time, especially in the middle of previews. <laughs> um, I will confess that in preparing for this, I had a really hard time trying to figure out how to talk to you about your work (laughs) with a capital W in something that would fit into 45 Minutes Um, because you are a professional lighting designer and quite an academic and stay living in and out of those spaces. And so I wondered if we might just start out with uh, how you came to balancing those two things. I read a recent interview that you did and you said that you fell into teaching by accident.
1: I fell into everything by accident.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously. Um, What was your
1: journey from, I mean, Howard for undergrad and then to graduate school for lighting design? Well, I I should really go back to undergrad because I went to Howard to be an actress. Okay. And then a, a friend of mine convinced me to go into lighting my, my freshman year. So, like I said, that was by sheer accident. That just changed my life when just having that very short conversation with him, which he has no recollection of. <laughs> um, and who are your mentors there? Uh, Ralph Dines. He was the um, manager of the Crampton Auditorium. That's our touring, touring house. house. Yeah. So he was a major <clears throat> influence on in my life because uh, I worked in the touring house. And then I had people in my department, Ron Truett, who was my lighting professor, St. Clair Christmas, um, and then I had Henrietta Edmonds who mm. did Children's Theater. Um, so I just had wonderful mentors at Howard. What kind of work did you do in the touring house?
0: Load in, load out? Oh, <clears throat> oh no, no, no. What was I, it?
1: I got to design. Okay. Um, yeah, it was just an amazing, I mean, Mr. Dines was, you know, a huge IA uh, rep, and so we were treated like professionals. I mean, we were taught like professionals. We got, you know, paid. We didn't get paid IA rates, but we went by IA rules. You know, if you work, you come in for two minutes, you get paid for four hours. If you work over eight hours, it's overtime. So, you know, he taught me a lot about the business. So, but no, we did. God, I just remember before I left Howard, I was what was called the crew chief. That meant I was in charge of all backstage. Okay. And as a lighting person, I got to, to pick the shows that I wanted to light. So, you know, by the time I left Howard, I had done, like, LaBelle, Chaka Khan, the Funkadelics, and, you know, all sorts of jazz artists. So it was just amazing. That is and so people who came there, they knew that, oh, this is a good group of of students who work here. They know what they're doing. And then <laughs> did you go right from undergrad to graduate school? <laughs> I went directly to grad school because... Usually I don't encourage students to go undergrad, straight to grad, because you need to get some experience. But by the time I left Howard, I had all this professional experience Mm -hmm. from the touring house. And then the summer before I went to grad school, I worked like six, seven, six months. I mean, not six months, six weeks with the uh, uh, Folklife Festival that Uh was held through the Smithsonian. And so I I just had a tremendous amount of experience. And so I knew what I wanted to do. Coming Mm -hmm. out of graduate school did you just start looking for work I I did and this is something that I learned you know it's all about who you know Mm -hmm. um and this we're talking about 78 the days before email and (laughs) pdfs and all this stuff so I had to literally type Mm -hmm. countless letters. you know I had to type resumes and you know so I sent out a lot of letters to places and The one job that I did get was through a friend who was working for a choreographer named Diane McIntyre. And she said, oh, I'm the office person for Diane. And she said uh, her lighting designer, Alan Lee Hughes, who was at the show last night. He's a friend of mine. (laughs) Do you know Alan Lee Hughes? I don't. I know the name. We've never met. He's like one of the few black lighting designers Mm -hmm. that worked on Broadway. He did a soldier's play, which was his last show. Um, and so she said, "Alan just took a job somewhere else. It was a job he couldn't refuse." And so, she's in desperate need of a of a lighting designer. And I told her about you. And I spoke with her, and she says, "When can you get here?" So that was my first job. And
0: what did you do for Diane?
1: I was a lighting designer. I was a lighting designer, and I guess TD because we we mm-hmm. travel for the most part. And I just want to say, was, also did sound was that
0: strictly dance lighting?
1: It was strictly dance-like. Yeah, so I came to New York. For those
0: that don't know Diane McIntyre. Right, I'm sorry, Diane McIntyre. Yeah, she's
1: she's a major choreographer, and she's going to do a show, something at Lincoln Center. I can't remember what it it is. Is it Intimate Apparel? I can't remember. She's going to do something major. I mean, Mm. she's on her own now at the time she had a company. Yes. But she's been choreographing for a different show. So, So I worked with her for six months. I got out of school that August, and I was with her from, like, August to, like, December and then what And then she lost her grant that paid me. <laughs> uh, like I said everything is just everything you know happens it just falls in place. She lost her grant and she couldn't keep me on. she said you can either stay and I can't pay you it's like uh, I don't think so um, But during the Christmas during the Christmas break I was I'd gone down to Howard to visit you know some of my friends mm-hmm. and stuff and they were working on a show that they were taking to Europe was called Sound of Soul, and then they were also working, the, some of the students and former students, they were going to be the chorus for part of um, a European premiere of Raisin, the musical. Okay. So I was sitting there watching rehearsal, and then when I got back to New York, this is all in one day, I got the note that I had lost my job because I'd gone into the office and, and picked up my mail, and Diane didn't have the courage to tell me herself. You know, she just wrote a long letter. And I went home, was like, oh, what am I supposed to do? Got home, there was a voicemail on my phone, said, <laughs> this is Marvin, I just got a show at um, Entertainment Tonight They had just started. Anyway, I called him. To make a long story short, he had gotten a job in Hollywood. He said, this is a full-time gig. I can't turn it down. You know I'm supposed to be taking the show to Europe. You sit there and saw the rehearsal. I don't want to tell them no. <laughs> unless I have a replacement and he said can you go and I said when do you all leave he said in two weeks it's like what (laughs) so anyway so I was in Europe for like six months with this show didn't have a passport had to go back to D.C. back in those days you can get a passport in one day and it was just a wonderful experience how did you end up was Smith your first teaching? It was my first teaching job. How
0: did you, how did that happen? How did you get the transition,
1: that first transition oh, from so professional weird. work into uh, academia? Okay, what happened? After I came back from Switzerland, because we were like in four different countries. We were based in Switzerland. We went to Germany, Austria, Liechtenstein, which I never, I didn't know the country. <laughs> um, so we were there. I came back in May. And so when I came back, I got my first off Broadway show with Woody King mm-hmm. at New Federal Theatre. It was Glenda Dickinson. It was a show with Glenda. Ah. My first and only time working with Glenda. So it was her show. And then I did something with NEC. I was doing I was busy when I got back. And my parents had they didn't understand what I was doing. Because <laughs> my father kept saying, you yeah, know, where do you work? And who do you work for? It's like I don't work for anybody. And I remember going home and my father having a long talk with me. It's like you know, just I just don't understand what you do. I say I freelance, and he says, well, "What?" It was basically, like, "What is that?" And I was trying to explain. It's like, you know, I take a job here, and then when that's over, I take another job, and you know. And he just hated the term. He said freelance. It sounded like prostitution to him. It's like I I mean. he says, "How am I supposed to tell my friends that's what my daughter does?" You know, you got a two degrees. You freelance like I. Don't... And so he said, "Why don't you get a teaching job? Can you just get a hmm. teaching job for a little while?" So you can have a real job because teaching was that's I, something I have had a very similar but, conversation
0: with my father. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so my sister, who's a, a professor, you know, we were living together in New Jersey and, you know, it came up. She said, oh, Smith College is looking for uh, a lighting person at the bottom. It says women and minorities, please apply. And she said, I think that's your job. And the irony is I had gone to Smith not in a, as an exchange student, we didn't really have an exchange with Smith at Howard, but I'd gone there for one semester. Okay. And they all remembered me. I mean, this was like, I'd gone in like, what, 75? And this was like, 79. Okay. And so they remembered me, they interviewed me. Um, it was a very good interview, and I wasn't really dying to teach anywhere, but I just said, oh, I, I've, I've applied for all these jobs and nothing has come through. I didn't get the job originally. Um, And, you know, the chair of the department called and said, oh, you were really one of our top three candidates, Mm -hmm. but we gave the job to such and such a person. I wasn't upset, anyway. So about two weeks before classes, the chair calls and says, I know this is really awkward, but our top choice just got this big opera in Europe, and she said it's a chance of a lifetime, and she wants to work in Europe, so she... And then she said the second person discovered she was pregnant Mm -hmm. and she did not want to start her career and trying to have a child. And I said, oh, so when do you want me to come? (laughs) (laughs) So that's how that happened. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and I loved it. I didn't think I wanted to be a teacher. But what was good about Smith was it was less than three hours from New York. Mm-hmm. So I was able to continue working in New York. But I wasn't doing theater. I was doing dance because that was easier to do on a weekend. Right. Or I, would, I was doing concerts. That's music a shorter concert. commitment. Yeah, it's a shorter commitment. So I could go away and, on a weekend. and I would bring my students with me, which was great. Excellent. I don't think that I realized that you lived with your sister. And oh. it, it worked out well because she was teaching at Montclair. Okay. I mean, well, she was an administrator. It was Montclair. It was one of the schools in the area. And then I was working in Harlem with Diane. Okay. But it worked out well because it was like equal distance for both of us. We, I lived in Hackensack, New Jersey. Okay. And so, but we were, I was on the road most of the time with Diane. So it wasn't like I was in New York a lot. We were, we were touring. Right. The reason that I asked that is there's something that you mentioned in the introduction
0: that your sister inspired and encouraged your scholarship because of her own scholarship with black women. And I, that just struck me as... So interesting, and I realized I had no idea
1: what that was or what the story was behind that. The story was, and this, again, like I said, all this stuff happens by accident. I was, my very first day of grad school at Michigan, 1978, and I'm looking for the designer's orientation. So I don't know if this guy was an angel or where he came from. No, seriously, because I never saw him another day in my life. <laughs> so I stopped this young white guy in the hall and I said, can you tell me where the design orientation is? And he said, oh, the actors are over there. And I said, well, maybe he misunderstood me. I said, no, I'm looking for the designer. And he said, why? I said, because I'm a design major. And he said, I didn't know black people did anything other than perform. And he wasn't being facetious, Mm -hmm. he was dead serious. And I said, That's not true, because I'm coming from DC, Chocolate City, and over 90% of the people I work with are black people. So I know we exist, plus you're looking at me. (laughs) And so he says, Well, you know, I have a PhD in theater. I don't know if he was an alum or what. Uh, And I've never read any books that talked about black people backstage, you you know. And I had to go. I said, thank you, but I need to get to my orientation. And I just remember being livid the whole day during my orientation. So after orientation was over, I went to University of Michigan's Theater Library, which was very extensive. Mm -hmm. And I must have been there from like 6 or 7 until 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And I went through just about every Theater History Live book. And I was even angrier when I left because he was right. Mm-hmm. The only thing I saw about Blacks behind the scenes was Lawton Mitchell's book called yes. Black Drama. I mm-hmm. mean, he had a short section in there about Black designers. And then there was another book, Hallie Flanning, where she talked mm-hmm. about Blacks working in the federal But that was it. That was it. And I just remember going home and it was, I must have called my sister about 2 o'clock in the morning because she was working on her Ph.D. at University okay. of Illinois. And I said, this is what happened to me today and blah, blah, blah. And she says, well, it sounds like you need to do a book. I said, I'm not a scholar. I, I, I don't know how to do that. She says, well, why don't you start with interviewing all the people you knew in D.C. and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. And and so that's where it started. But I really didn't get seriously into the research until I got to Smith. So this is, what, 78, 1981, while I was teaching at Smith, I got this big Ford Foundation grant. Okay. And my sister told me about that. She <laughs> said, oh, this year, you know, Ford Foundation has these postdocs. And this particular year they're giving five to people with terminal degrees mfa and she says i think this is something you should apply to and and i did and i got it and it gave me a full year in new york to because i was affiliated with columbia university it gave me a chance to just interview i mean countless number of people and i also did some freelancing so You know, so that's how the research really got off the ground through the Ford Foundation. And then Margaret Wilkerson and James Hatch were Mm -hmm. just valuable resources for me. So much of your scholarship has been in the collection of plays and the
0: publication of anthologies. Mm -hmm. How did you go from
1: interviewing
0: designers (laughs) in
1: general into collecting these anthologies of plays? That was oh yeah, this is really interesting too. What happened was, NEH had summer um, faculty, well, they still do, they're called summer faculty fellowships, and you, you're, you, you go, you can pick a, a university you want to go to. Mm-hmm. And I saw that, and there was one at Howard, and I just wanted to be in D.C. for the summer. I said, <laughs> well, let me apply this NEH, and it was music, you know, it was, it was all about music. And this woman Doris McGinty, who I didn't know when I was at Howard, but she she was this renowned mm-hmm. musical musicologist. And I said, "Oh, well, this would be great. I could study with her." But I had to pick somebody in music to to study about. Okay. And I can't remember how I ended up picking up Shirley Graham Du Bois. I found out about her through the Federal Theater Project. Okay. Because she had mm-hmm. worked as a director and she had done some, you know, basic design. I just said, "Oh, she,", she and then I discovered that she was also um, a composer and a musician. I so, I I said, that. so I said, oh, she sounds like an interesting person. And so while studying Shirley Graham Du Bois, I realized she had written these plays. And I was just fascinated by her plays. I said, these need to be published. And then that's how I got started okay. collecting other early plays.
0: How, how has it been to balance scholarship and practice? Because you're staying being
1: it's, it's time it's been, it's been... Well, one, I don't have a social, much of a social life that's been part of it. Uh, cause, I mean, I guess I tie my social life with my, the work I do, yeah. with my travels and stuff. So, I mean, I, I couldn't do this if I had a, you know, kids and a family and all that stuff. I'd never be home or whatever. <laughs> but now that I'm not teaching, it, I have more control over what I do. Mm-hmm. When did you feel like you had made it? When did you feel like you could say, this
0: is what I do for a living like you I know that you knew yourself as a designer Mm -hmm. right out of undergrad even Mm -hmm. when did you feel like you had reached a level of success like how did you define success for yourself or are you still defining it for yourself
1: I mean for me I mean working on Broadway has never been the you know the epitome of success for me you know When I was coming along, success meant that I did a show with Woody King. Right. That I did a show at NEC. NEC. You know, I worked with Diane McIntyre. I mean, as soon as I got a job with Diane McIntyre, it's like, oh, I'm successful. Because at that time, she was really big. You know, everybody knew Diane McIntyre's sounds and motions. And, you know, she worked with Ntozake Shange. And, I mean, her studio, it was just a list of who's who that came. I don't know if you know who Jowle is, who just just won a MacArthur. I mean, like all of these women choreographers, you know, they started out with her. So, you know, um, it was just amazing seeing the people there. So, you know, for me, I I felt successful having worked with these people, you know, having worked with Mm Glinda. So it wasn't so much the big regional theaters or anything like that. But, you know. I
0: do want to ask a regional theater question, though, mm-hmm. because it seems to me that you worked with Ron Himes more than anyone. i work worked with him, like, 30 years. <laughs> Can you talk about working with him? I adore him personally, mm-hmm. and he is on my list of people that I hope to mm-hmm. sit down with for the
1: podcast. But what is it like to work with him? You know, I love working at the St. Louis Black Rep. I mean, like most black theater companies, they... They don't have a lot of money, so I don't work there because of the money. But, <laughs> I mean, that was a nice thing about teaching or doing other shows. Yeah. I can afford to go to the smaller black theaters and work for little or nothing. But I enjoyed being there because, one, because, you know, I'm there's a lot of black plays that I didn't know about mm-hmm. until I went there because he also did a lot of new work. Yeah. And then just some of the people that came through there, you know, some amazing um designers because he made a point to make sure he had black designers yes. and he also made a point. One of the things I admire about Ron and Woody, they really make a point to hire black women directors. Mm-hmm. So it was one of the few places I would go and I could work with black women directors. Mm. So you know, so that was good was for me. And I could always take students because I was like a two and a half drive from um I didn't even think about that, yeah. Yeah, from from Champagne. So when I was there, I could do, like, maybe three shows a year, something like that, and bring students and you know, who would put us up and everything. So the plays, the people. um, I had a chance to work with Felix a lot, Mm -hmm. Felix uh, Cochran, uh, because Felix was a regular there, and um, Reggie Ray, who's no longer, I don't know if you know Reggie Ray, who's no longer with us. So, you know, I just had some great designers to work with. Greg. Yeah, Greg Horton was there. We worked on a couple of shows. I'm, it's almost like a family, you know. It's a, a family affair that. when I go there. So, you know, I've done so many shows there. there's just a comfort level that mm-hmm. I enjoy when I go there.
0: As as you're talking about um, other black designers, mm-hmm. uh, I know I'm jumping all over the place in your mm-hmm. career, um, but you're now on Broadway mm-hmm. as like the second black woman. Yeah. Lighting
1: designer?
0: Yeah. You assisted sad. Shirley
1: Pendergast. I assisted her. In fact, I assisted her... On what show? I assisted her on a Broadway show, 1981. It was called The Waltz of the Star. Well, 82, because we opened January 1st of 82, so I would say 81, by Melvin Van Peebles, who just recently passed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, yeah, that was the first time I assisted her on Broadway. She was the only designer I assisted. Nobody else would hire me. What well, was... I feel like there's an obvious answer to this but
0: what was what was that experience for you working on Broadway and with another black female lighting designer i because i can imagine in the early 80s that that wasn't an easy
1: no path it 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 wasn't and actually my experience was not a good one um which is why i was having anxiety about doing this show um the but i think the community knew who shirley was mm-hmm. you know more or less but I remember her sending me in to focus lights. She said, well, why don't you go in, you know, uh, for the first two hours, and I'll be in, you know, shortly. You can go in and focus the stuff. So I had an 8 o'clock call. I got there. I think I got I always get to places early. And one of the things I learned in graduate school is that I have a very white name, Kathy Perkins. I does wanted not, to ask you about It does this. not sound like a black name. I, it never dawned on me until I got to grad school. And so I would apply to these jobs. Again, this is before internet and Google and, you know, we can search and see who you are. It would it would be assumed that I was a white woman. And everything on my resume... In, in fact, it's so funny because Ron Hines thought I was white when um, he was looking for a black lighting designer. And because I kept sending him my resume and then someone finally told him at a conference, like, no, man, she's a black woman. He said, really? Um, and then when I told him that, he said, well, you know... I kept saying, you taught at Smith's College because you had an MFA. Because there weren't that many black women with MFAs. I think I may have been right, the first. Right. And so he said, I saw MFA, and then I saw you had a union card, and you taught at Smith. And and just because I did black shows mean nothing because most uh-huh. of the black shows are designed by white designers. Mm-hmm. And I said, I, I went to Howard. That's the dead. He that's, said, that's he like said I, I didn't even go that far down on the resume. Mm-hmm. He said, I didn't even go that far. And Howard is the dead giveaway. Uh, and to me, that... And he he said, I would have thought, yeah. yeah, He said he didn't even look that far. He just looked at the first couple of things and said, no, okay, I'm looking for a black person.
0: That's amazing. It was
1: so funny. So, how did that translate to working with Shirley? Like, oh, no, no. She was wonderful. Like I said, she was the only designer who would hire me Mm -hmm. because white designers would not hire me. Um, When I was at Michigan, we had a Broadway designer who came and I assisted him, and he just thought I was wonderful. And it's like, well, you never gave me a business card. You never said, when you come to New York, call me. But anyway, so when I got to New York, I did call him. You know, people weren't hard to to contact then. And and I said, oh, I'm Kathy Perkins. I don't know if you remember me. Of course I remember you were wonderful. You were fantastic. I said, I see that you're doing all these shows. You're doing a show on Broadway, Lincoln Center. I was wondering if you needed any assistance. And it was like silence. And I said, hello, are you still there? (laughs) And he says, well... The time is not right. I say, what do you mean the time isn't right? He says, if I said first of he said, first of all, you know, as a lighting designer, you have to be with your associate all day long and you all go out for drinks and dinner and stuff, and he says, anybody saw me with you would just assume you're somebody I picked up. And no one's gonna believe that you're really a lighting designer. You know, you're just young, attractive black woman. It's like no one's gonna believe that you're working with me. They think you're somebody I picked up. And then I had another white guy who told me that. Someone who had had come to my school, too, and, you know, said the same thing, you're great to work with. That blew me away, so I told my advisor, Mr. Dines, Howard, because, you know, when I decided to go to grad school and stuff, he said, we need to have a long talk, and he just told me about every obstacle that I would have to, you know, you need to be prepared for this. I said, well, you never prepared me for this one. He said, oh, I didn't think about that one. So it was just really interesting. But so Shirley was the only person that I worked with, which was, you know, and I'm thankful to her. I'm thankful to Woody King because he told me about her when he came Mm -hmm. to Howard my sophomore year. So she was great. But anyway, going back to the Broadway show, she sent me in early, and I think the crew thought I was a white woman. I don't know if they knew who Shirley was or not. They could have. I don't know. But I walked in, and I said, Hi, I'm Kathy Perkins. And they all looked at me like, What? And one of the guys on the crew said, I ain't working with this. He didn't even say, I ain't working with her. He says, I ain't working with this. And he just left. And so I'm asking the mass electrician, it's like, well, what are you going to do to him? He says, oh, I can't do anything to him. We're union brothers, blah, blah, blah. And I'll just call so-and-so who lives in Jersey. And I said, does he have to come across the George Washington Bridge? He said, yes. Yeah. So I'm looking at my watch. And it's like 820. I said he's not gonna get here before nine thirty. If we're just yeah. calling him and he's gotta get ready. Oh well we'll just take a lunch break till um, a coffee break till he gets here. And I just wanted to cry. But I remember my Mr. Dyne said, Don't ever let anybody make you cry. <sighs> yeah. So I was just so humiliated. It's like I think I wanted to cry because I was I saw myself disappointing Shirley. Yeah, you know, mm. this is your first big break and you know i mean it wasn't my fault and she was I'm so sure under- she no understood. she was extremely understanding i said this is what happened surely the guy left it was nothing i can do she said it's fine we'll, we'll be okay
0: i'm so struck because of course i'm here in the city to see trouble in mind and i'm listening to you tell these stories about the white man who doesn't want to go out for meals and drinks with Right. the black right. members of the company and oh oh, this way right. you read the play. <laughs> I, I reread it this past yeah. summer. I was like, oh my god! Like because Charles had gone off about like how it needs to be heard right now, and right. of course I work with Project right. One Voice, and so I had revisited it years ago, but not recently. And so this summer I reread mm-hmm. it, um, and and as you're talking, bits and
1: pieces of the play are mm-hmm. coming back to me, and uh, and then there's a scene in the play where they. The actor, the guy says, "Why don't you eat with the color cast?" That's exactly what I'm. Yeah. Yeah, and he says, "Oh, I was with Millie, and people thought I was some old lecher, and <laughs> so I thought about this. Like, okay, this is what this guy was thinking about. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. You know. Anyway, but it, it was yeah. Well, but this group that um, the people of Roundabout have just been amazing. Well, I mean, I've had the best. I I couldn't ask for a better proof. They were just great, and I've even had some. One guy came up to me. He saw me on the street. Um, he said, you know, I really... I mean, he didn't have to stop me. I didn't see him. <laughs> and he says, I just want to let you know I hope we get to work together again and you're like one of the best lighting people that we've had uh-huh. come in there. And, you know, it's just a pleasure working with you. And, and one of the things I do when, you know, my crew is important. They can <laughs> make or break a show. Right. And so one of the things I do, you know, I always take my crew out to lunch or dinner or something and because of COVID, you know, we just ordered in. The, the mass electrician said, let's just do this. Let me ask the guys what they want. We'll just order in. and We'll just eat up in the, on our, in the lobby. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have a, a place, a lounge. Yes. Downstairs. And so it was about seven of them. Um, they just ordered from Junior's. You know. And then they all said, oh, the older guy said, I've been in this business 30 years. No, I've been at the Roundabout for 30 years. He says, you're the first line designer that ever treated us to anything to eat. I said, You kidding? He said, No. He says, No. We've never had anybody treat us to lunch. Huh. So they were so appreciative of it. But I mean they were just great. I just said, you know, this was the least I could do. Yeah.
0: You know. What it I mean, you're you now are on Broadway. Has your process changed at all? Was was it the same to do a Broadway show as it is
1: to do something anything yeah, mean, else? It's or did just, you feel any kind diff- of way about it? It's just more paperwork involved. It's just more detailed stuff. There were some things that, you know, I didn't know. I mean, yeah, the process, the way they work, mm-hmm. you know. My contacts through the 18th, I just assume I'm going to continue working on the show up until the 18th. And the woman says, no, we do a freeze on the 11th. It's like, what does that mean? It's like, as of the 11th, which is tomorrow, mm-hmm. you can't make any changes. It's like, really? Why? Because she said, that's when press comes in. Because I'm used to Mm. the press coming opening night and then every was you. She says, no, no, no. For Broadway shows, the press comes in a full week before Mm -hmm. opening. And they all have to see the same show. So whatever you set for the 11th, that's it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm used to Union Crews. They have to take so many breaks or whatever. and You can't touch this. You can't touch that. Mm -hmm. So, but no, they've, they've been great, you know, yeah. What's been the most rewarding part of this process. Just I mean, I know Alice Childress was just a friend of yours. Yeah, just knowing that, like I said, this is beyond a dream, you know. Like I said, I met Childress the last 10 years of her life, and I, I always preface when people ask me about her, I am not her biographer. Mm, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I have no way her biographer. You know, I, I know about her life and stuff, but that was one of the things, you know, again, this is the last 10 years of her life. She wants to move forward, you know. And I want to just acknowledge for
0: the listeners who don't know that you have also published an anthology of Alice Childress's work, right? As
1: well, just right. so
0: when you say I'm not her biographer, I want to put that in
1: context, right? And people for assume the people who I don't am. Know that book. Yeah, yeah, because I published her works, and that was something she did want. She did want her place out there in a collection. She wanted to be remembered for her work, but she was always feeling that people were prying too much into her personal life, and mm. she was really. She had reached a point she was annoyed about that. She says, yes, I want to be remembered, but I'm just tired of people Mm -hmm. asking me all these personal questions. I really need producers and directors coming to my house. You know, Mm -hmm. know, I need to work because she never made any money. She never made any much money in her lifetime. Um, And, you know, the last... She died, not suddenly, but... I don't think she knew she was as sick as she was. Mm Well, she wasn't. Her, her husband even said that after she passed. Um, but she was trying to revisit a play that she had written in the 80s. This was in 90, ni- the end of 93. She was talking about it. We were talking about the play early on through 94 because she died in August of 94. And what play it, is this? It's called A Host of Friends. I mean, she never finished reworking it. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a large cast. And I think doing it, I think around 94, the, the economy was not that great. Mm-hmm. And she said, "Oh, you know, this is going to be a show we're going to work on together. And she knew Debbie Allen mm-hmm. and George Wolf was still at the public. Mm-hmm. And um, Debbie Allen doesn't remember about it. Maybe children's never contacted her. Because mm-hmm. she said, I'm going to contact Debbie and see if she can do it while George Wolfe is at the public theater. Because I did interview Debbie Allen. All she could remember was, Wedding Band. They were supposed to do Wedding Band as a film, and it, it never happened. It was just mm-hmm. so many problems. Um, but she was trying to finish up this play. She was working on three major projects, a, a story about her grandmother. I don't know if it was going to be a children's book or what. She was obsessed with Paul, um, Paul Lynch Dunbar and Alice Dunbar Nelson. So mm-hmm. she was, had been collecting all of their letters, and she was going to do a book. I don't know how far she got. Because I didn't go through everything in right. her collection at the Schomburg, And then she was working on this play. And she kept saying, what do you think of this play? Um, it, it, you know, it, it needed work. She knew that. That's why she went back to it. It was a huge cast. And I was very honest with her. I said, 13 people? Yeah. I said, mm-hmm. you know, not only 13 people. It was a play that took place an hour after The Last Supper. So it's in the same house where jesus and the disciples <laughs> yes. met so we're talking about 13 people lots of food you know it was like lots mm-hmm. of leavened bread or whatever it was and they were in period clothes and she had two of the guys had to be rosters and you know that, you know, she was not the type of person who would do you know double casting people right because she was very conscious of the plays that were going on at the time and you know she was thinking she says oh um, Is what I'm doing is it outdated, or it seems like everybody's what did she call? She called TV the box. She said it's all this (laughs) stuff reminds me of stuff on the box. Not that she was saying it was bad, but Mm -hmm. it was just a different style of working. You know, at that time it was the Colored Museum with what five people playing a thousand characters, and (laughs) then we had Anna W. Smith, one person playing 30 people. Yes, she said, I can't write that way. Yeah, you know, well, and that makes.
0: Reading her work that does make sense. Mm-hmm. And she is so specific about the ages, the looks, mm-hmm. the garments that they're wearing. Yeah. I, I can see that that specificity yeah. of character would be important to her.
1: But I, I know she would be very happy knowing that her work is being done. I wish she was here to reap the benefits, but you know. I'm sure she's I'm sure she is here. Yeah, no, we feel her we felt her spirit in the space. I'm sure of it. Yeah. Oh. So it's just been a, a tremendous task. Charles Randolph Wright, this has been his dream. He has championed this for so long. Yes, because I know 13 years ago, I worked on a show with him, was it 2007, 2008? He talked about it, and then when my book came out, I ran into him at the Black Theater Festival. He said, oh, you got this book out on Alice. We have to do this show. I'm going to get the show to Broadway, and you'll be the lighting designer. And it's like, okay. <laughs> you you call me when that happens. Yeah. No, I called him when I saw it in the papers, mm-hmm. like... Uh, this is, hi Charles, I didn't know if he was still the same number, I hadn't been in touch with him in like five or six years, so I texted him, I said, this is Kathy Perkins here, uh, I see you doing children's, I don't know if you remember our last conversation, <laughs> and he, he literally called me as soon as he saw the text, he said, this is amazing, I'm, I, I was just talking to the producer about you, and yeah, we want you on board, he's like, no, I haven't forgotten about that, so, so the rest is history.
0: Well, with that, there's a question that I end every podcast with, and Uh I think talking about plays that we champion Mm -hmm. um, fits right in 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 all of our back-and-forth conversations about the capital B, capital C black canon and what should be in it. Mm -hmm. I asked each of my interviewees um, if there was one play that you thought should be in the black canon. Trouble in Mind. Is it Trouble in Mind? (laughs) You're not the first person to say that. (laughs)
1: Trouble in Mind, Yeah. And I love. Oh, I can't think of this. The Big White Fog. That's a play that people mm. don't. By do you even know it? I don't. don't no. Okay. I'm, I'm like I'm like about to write it down. And- it's by Theodore Ward, and he. It's really sad too because, and actually, somebody's done a book on this. It's almost like we go from A and T, you know, Harlem Renaissance, A and T's the '30s and early '40s, and then we skip to the Black Arts Movement. So there's like so little said about the playwrights of the 40s and 50s 50s. so it's like children's Theodore Ward and a lot of their plays dealt with interracial Mm cast they were large cast you know but i'm hoping i can interview some of the people before i leave it's just time you know i'd rather not do it on zoom i'd rather do it yes in person so i do understand that it's just hard catching up with people well i I want to thank you. Oh,
0: you're welcome. For I making time reliable. and for allowing me to oh, do document me? and record mm-hmm. uh, things about your life and your story and, thank and your you. work. Thank yeah. you.
1: So it's, it's been a real joy.
0: Thank you, thank you so I much. Appreciate it. Yeah. This is the Black Theatre History Podcast. I'm KB Sane. Our podcast is produced by Equity Justice Productions and is edited by Jeremiah Turner. Our music is by Kaya Caterhurst from the album Nine Pin which can be found wherever great music is sold. If you like what you hear on the podcast, you can learn more at www.blacktheaterhistory.com. The Black Theatre History podcast is produced under a Creative Commons license. Educators who want to use our podcast episodes may freely do so by linking directly to the episodes at our website. You can also find information about how to donate to the podcast and about episode commissions and sponsorships. That's www.blacktheaterhistory.com theater is spelled with an R E please subscribe to the black theater history podcast on audible apple podcasts and other streaming services and please do leave us a review your feedback helps us spread the word about the history we're documenting here thank you to all of you our listeners and as always thanks to my friends and colleagues at the black theater network we're all in this together friends we've got a lot more to learn thanks for listening